Okay, the parasha Bahar, this week's parasha, its topic is Shvita and Yovel. Shvita is something that happens every seven years. And Yovel is something that happens seven times seven plus one, every 50th year. And of course, Shvita and Yovel have always been of great interest to a, the widest variety of people imaginable. Because Shemitah and Yovel seem to be about social justice of some sort. And, uh, you know, in Israel, in Israel, in the, the new Israel, the Israel that was uh, created at the end of the 19th and the, and the 20th centuries, um, there was an institution called Kibbutzim or Kibbutz. A Kibbutz is a, a village, but dedicated to certain, certain principles of social equality. Very interesting idea. Very interesting idea that people of disparate talents should get the same lunch. I mean, it's a very, very strange idea which. Um, I, for one, did not grow up with in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, you could, you know, the lunches depended very much on the amount of money that you could spend on lunch. But in Kibbutzim, I mean, I know you remember this also. There's even one Kibbutznik in our midst tonight. Uh, who could disagree with everything that I say but I'm just trying to to say there was this idea there was an idea in Eretz Yisrael amongst the people who came that not only should they create a Jewish and democratic uh, country but there was an idea that this country that they create this Jewish democratic country should also be a bastion of social equality. And so, to further that idea, I mean, and there were other reasons as well, right? I know I'm simplifying history, but that's a good way to grab onto it. So, these kibbutzim, these kibbutzim had that idea that everybody, no matter what their talents and ability to contribute to the whole, to the community were, they would all be the recipients of the same benefits. So, in uh, 1967, they decided, you know, like in 1968 and the Six-Day War, which of course were notable for the fact that Israel then had a television station, right? The first Israeli television station was after the Six-Day War. And... Uh, uh, preceded, it was preceded by Jordanian television and Saudi Arabian television, Leban- Lebanese television. So on Kibbutzim, I can say they would get together and say, should we buy a television? So as long as the television came from Jordan and Lebanon, they said no. So nobody had a television. But after Israel television, you know, then the real battles began and eventually there was a decision that there should be a television. But that meant everybody got a television. That was the world of, uh, of social equality. And the claim is 
The claim is that that world of social equality for the Jews in the primary document, the primary Jewish document, which is the Torah, that that idea comes from the notions of Shemitah and Yovel. And we'll look into that a little bit, a little bit today. But before we start, I would like to mention that the first Pasuk, it's not on the sheet, but the first Pasuk of the Parashah of Baha'i, which you should know Baal I should also know Baal but I'll look it up anyway. The first Pasuk in Baha'i, by the Hashem Moshe, by the Hashem Moshe, that's a pretty standard introduction for something. But what follows in this particular case are the words, Bahar Sinai, Lemoir. That's what follows in the Pasuk. And of course, it, it created a mystery. Because if we think back, if we think back, start from the beginning of Shemot, right? We've learned Shemot. Shemot Va'era Bo B'Shalach. What are those parashiyot about? What do we call those parashiyot? Yitziat Mitzrayim. Very good, thank you very much. Good answer. Yitziat Mitzrayim. Again, Shmot Va'era Bo B'Shalach Yitziat Mitzrayim. Yitro Mishpatim. Those are the next two parashiyot. That's Torah. Matan Torah. Moshe Avedu goes up to get the Torah, comes down, the parasha of Mishpatim, a lot of laws and regulations. That's Mishpatim. After Mishpatim, Trumat Tzaveh, and Vayakel Pekudeh, skipping Kitisa. Trumat Tzaveh is about building the Mishkan, building the tabernacle, which is the first thing B'nai Yisrael had to do after Moshe came down from Har Sinai. Moshe came down from Har Sinai when? 120 days after Vav Sivan. Vav Sivan was when today Israel experienced the theophany. That's what it's called in, his, in English. Hitgalut in Hebrew, the awareness of the presence of God and that God could give the Torah to B'nai Yisrael through Moshe Rabbeinu. They didn't get the Torah. All they got were the first two of the Ten Commandments. Then Moshe Rabbeinu on the same day, Rav Sivani went up on the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, came down from the mountain, and then God said to him, go back up on the mountain for 40 days and you'll get, you'll get Torah Mitzvot, Torah Mitzvot Luchot. Those are the three things that you're going to get. And the Parshanim had difficulty with those words. Torah, Mitzvot, Torah, Mitzvot, Luchot. Luchot ha'even, v'ha-mitzvah, Torah. That's what the Pasuk says. It's a difficulty, but in the, uh, for us, if we're not so precise, it's not difficult at all. You'll get, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to get whatever you're supposed to get. Forty days. After forty days, Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai came down on Har Sinai and saw that they had built the golden calf and this created a diversion and it took Moshe Rabbeinu 40 days to clear this up to clear up the mess that was made by the Egel Azahab and then God told Moshe Rabbeinu again go up the mountain because he had broken he had broken the Luchot he had broken the tablets that he came down with after 40 days and so God said to Moshe Rabbeinu come up again but this time you chisel out the tablets. I mean, obviously there's going to be a difference. 
between mata, the matan of the tablets number one and matan of the tablets number two, but that took another 40 days. 40 days and 40 days and 40 days, 120 days. And the 120 days fell, according to Rashi, fell on Yud Tishrei, the 10th day of Tishrei, which then began, became became Yom HaKippurim, right? That was the day that Moshe Rabbeinu came down from on Har Sinai and gave these luchot to B'nai Yisrael and started teaching them the Torah. What Torah did he teach them? Did Moshe Rabbeinu teach them? The Torah of building the Mishkan. Trumat, Tzavet, Vayakel, Pekudei, and we're finished with the book of Shemot. Having built the Mishkan, Having built the Mishkan, the tabernacle, B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael needed to know about how to run it. How do you run the Mishkan? What do you do? So what do you have to know? You have to know Korbanot, Vayikra, right? Vayikra, you have to know about the Korbanot, you have to know about Tumah V'tahara, you have to know about the role of the Kohanim, you have to know all the laws that are connected to Kohanim, Vayikra, Tzav, Shmini, Right? All of those parashiyot in Vayikra are parashiyot connected to the Mishkan. When did Moshe already teach them to B'nai Yisrael, teach all this material to B'nai Yisrael? I don't know. But it was in the desert. In the desert, Moshe Rabbeinu would go into the Old Moed, God would say, here's the next chapter. Teach it to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu would come out and teach it to B'nai Yisrael. That's the way the Chachamim understood it, and that's what the the Rambam says in his introduction. Accepts this position that Moshe Rabbeinu taught B'nai Yisrael the Torah. B'nai Yisrael taught Moshe Rabbeinu that Moshe Rabbeinu was taught the Torah during the thirty-eight years of wandering around in the desert. Right? You remember the Chet Muraglim? Remember the Muraglim? The Muraglim were in the second year after they left Mitzrayim, that means 38 years they wandered around, and during those 38 years, Moshe Rabbeinu taught them the the Torah. So that this took place, this wandering around, took place between the end of Ayikra, Bamidbar, and the end of Bamidbar. Bamidbar, the book of Bamidbar, which will come up in two weeks, the book of Bamidbar, is the book of wandering around the desert when B'nai Yisrael really learned the Torah. <sighs> I know I've said this before, but it's good to know because it gives you kind of a, a like a hold on the on the Torah. You, you sort of got it. Oh, got it. So now I say to you, this pasuk at the end of Ayikra, which we know is going to be about Shemitah V'yovel, and we know that Shemitah V'yovel has nothing to do with the life of B'nai Yisrael in the desert. Shemitah V'yovel don't come up again until they get to Eretz Yisrael. And if we get to Eretz Yisrael, it doesn't come up for 21 years. Why? Because no mitzvot to liot Eretz Yisrael are, uh, are, are enforced until B'nai Yisrael conquer the land and divide it up. Right? It's not, it's not a mitzvah. Somebody goes to Eretz Yisrael, you do the mitzvah. No. It's only Am Yisrael together who conquer the land of Israel who are obliged 
to keep the Shemitah and the Yovet. We, we today, right, having, well, apparently there's a, there's a, a mitzvah de Rabbanan to keep Shemitah, even if not all of these prerequisites are fulfilled. So today, most people would agree, most we show them agree that we keep Shemitah, we keep Shemitah, that's an interesting, interesting story also. We keep Shemitah as a mitzvah mit Rabbanan. It's only because the Rabbanan said that even if you didn't conquer the land, yeah, but you're living here, if Jews are living in Eretz Israel, they have an obligation to kind of consider that mitzvah, to think about it, to do it. And so we passed it like the Beit Yosef. The Beit Yosef said there's a mitzvah Rabbanan bismanenu to keep Shemitah. Unfortunately, and I'll get back to this later, most people don't really keep Shemitah. I mean, most people who keep Shemitah don't really keep Shemitah. Because Shemitah, Shemitah says that you're not allowed to um, work the land, work the land that you own. Now, most people today don't own land that is being worked. So it's sort of like all they do is get fruits and vegetables in the store in a bag that says okay on it. So while in some way it sort of indicates that you're in tune with the mitzvah, it certainly doesn't have anything to do with kiyum ha-mitzvah. And that's why in, uh, in modern times it was the kibbutzim, it was the kibbutzim where there were Jews who were ag- in agriculture. I mean, that's what they did. They actually grew things, and they uh, uh, there and on the kibbutzim there was an ongoing problem of what to do on the sabbatical year because it didn't seem to them at the time that you could actually get away with it, which you know uh, is either a good reason or that's a good reason. You have to, you have to think about it. Uh, okay, so now we know about how the Torah was given. So this pasuk. In the beginning of the parish of Bahar, there's a pasuk in the beginning of the parish of Bahar, which says, "Where the Hashem of Moshe, right? Bahar Sinai Lemo. What do you mean Bahar Sinai? They were Bahar Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai. They must have moved on from Mount Sinai. They must have gone somewhere. Though we have all this Torah that we learn, right? The end of Shemot and the entire book of Ayikra until Bahar." So what does it mean? So there is this famous Rashi. There's this famous Rashi. All the Rashis should be famous, but some are more famous than others. This Rashi says the following. And those of you who are Hebraists know that this is a... You could say this in modern day Hebrew. And what you mean is, what does this have to do with that? What's the connection? What are you talking about? Right, that got it. And it comes from this Rashi. Because people knew Rashi. Because after all, everything comes from Sinai. Rashi says. Somehow. It says. It says. Just like Shemitah, just like Shemitah, 
all of all of the, the the general principles and the particular ideas, they all come from Sinai. So too all the mitzvot, all the mitzvot and their their details all come from Sinai. So this is what uh, this is what Rashi this is what Rashi says. Now what Rashi is referring to, if you look at the sheet, now we can look at the sheet. Rashi is referring to first Shmot Perikav Gimel. Pasuk Yud Aleph, Perikav Gimel, Perikav Gimel is Shemot, is which parasha? Mishpatim, Mishpatim, where is Mishpatim finished? Shemot, Vayera, Bo, Mishalach, Yisro, Mishpatim, what did I tell you about Yitro and Mishpatim? What did I tell you, those were the two parashiyot of Matan Torah, describing the giving of the Torah. So in the parasha of Mishpatim, what's included in the parasha of Mishpatim? A kind of random list of of rules, of regulations, laws. You could call them laws. That would be good. There's like a whole list of laws in the parish of Mishpatim. Now, one of the laws in the parish of Mishpatim, which was certainly given to Bnei Yisrael at Har Sinai, even though I, it's a little more complicated, but I, I'll say that anyway. It was given to B'nai, to B'nai, so when they were still standing at Harish they hadn't moved any place. They're there. So what does the Pasuk say in uh, Bishvatim? Hashriyit, the seventh year. Tishmetena. Let it all alone. Umetashta. Just leave everything be. Let your agriculture be. Don't be involved. He says, And they will eat the poor of the land, of the people, the impoverished. They will eat your stuff. And you have to just leave it out there. And if the poor people don't eat it all, okay, so the animals, the wild animals will come and eat their part. You do the same thing, not only to your fields, but to your vineyards and to your olive groves. In other words, what does the Pasuk say? That we're enacting a, a social uh, 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 fixing. We're fixing the social uh, strata in the world. The poor people always have difficulty. They have difficulty getting enough food to eat, doing what they're supposed to do, but on the seventh year, on the seventh year, no difficulty at all. Because they can come into your field and take whatever is growing there. And they can even store it. They can put it away. In other words, this changes the reality. Every seven years, there's no longer a landowner and a beggar. There's no longer the person who has the produce and the people who are begging to get a little bit of the produce. But all of a sudden, for one year, everybody is equal. Everybody is equal. And uh, uh, this is a remarkable idea. It's a remarkable idea. I don't know what happens the other six years, but even for one year, one year out of seven to think that everybody has equal rights to whatever is growing in Eretz Israel, that ownership becomes almost redistributed on the seventh year. Everybody is the Baal Habayim. Everybody is the owner of the land. 
and can go into that land and take what they wish. Now that's the pasuk that appears in Shmot with B'nai Yisrael word Har Sinai. In Babidbar, in, I'm sorry, in Vayikra, in Bahar, the discussion of Shemitah is extensive. And there are a few points that I would like to remind you of. Look at, you see, Vayikra, Perikah, Vey, that's us. Right? Vayikra, Perikah, Vey. Shei Shadim Tizrah Sadecha. V'shei Shadim Tizvah Karmecha. V'sav Tetzvotah. Six years you work the land. You collect the, the wheat. On the seventh year, Shabbat. Shabbat. Now, I, I don't know exactly what Shabbat means. Shabbat could mean relax. You know, sit on the porch. Don't do anything. That's Shabbat. But somehow, I'm reminded of the word Shabbat. It's hard for me to avoid that. So I wonder if Shabbat wasn't there's a connection. Rashi, Rashi doesn't mention that, but uh, the next pasuk, uh, the next pasuk is Sadchalot Yismo Bekavachodos Et Mizrah Bekavachalot Yismo Pasuk Hey Et Zefiyah Kitzir Chalot Yitzov Et Inveil Nizirah Chalot Yitzov Shadat Shabbaton Yela Aretz That there's a there's a overlap a little bit more than the seventh year a little bit the beginning of the seventh year. Uh, the, the, the pasuk hints at a variety of halachic decisions that were made by, clearly made by Chazal. Pasuk ba vayda Shabbat haaretz lachem loochla lecha olavdecha lavotcha l'schircha letoshavcha garimimach. They said neutral. That these distinctions exist in the society in Eretz Yisrael. Who is mentioned? Who is mentioned? Your slave. Your female slave, your hired hand, the ones who live with you, right? All of these people become equal. All of a sudden, they were last last week they were your slaves, they were your hired hands, they were your assistants, your adjutants, and suddenly they're just like you. They want to eat, they walk into the kitchen and eat whatever's there, right? So to speak. It's something, it's something remarkable, so that even though the society is stratified, and even though there are people who are better off and people who are worse off, but once in seven years, everybody's the same. Everybody's exactly the same. Then, the Pasuk Vazayim Vazazam, Hebtechal, Echayashem, Atzachat, Yekol, Tzuatal, Echol, the animals, even the animals are in there. Vesafat, Elchashem, Vesham, Vesot, Shadim, and the second part of the parasha is about Yobel. Vesafat, Elchashem, Sheva Shabbatot Shanim, Sheva Pabim, Bayulachay Be Sheva Shabbatot Shanim, Teshavim Shada, Babata Shofar, Tu Abba Kodisha Shriba, Sola Kodish Biova, Kipurim, Tabir Shofar, the Kol Arzachev. So we're back to Yoma Kipurim. My Yoma Kipurim was the day that Moshe Abedi came down from Har Sinai, and that was the day that Moshe Abedi started teaching them the Parachat, the Mishkan, of building the Mishkan. And now the Torah says that on that Yom HaKippurim, once in 50 years, you have to blow a shofar. Not the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, right? Not the shofar that we blow on Rosh Hashanah, but a different shofar. A shofar that we blow on Yom HaKippurim. And that shofar, right? Pesuk Tet, Vavad the shofar shu'a v'chodesh v'shri v'asola chodesh v'yom HaKippurim ta'aviyu shofar v'chol ha'atzachev v'kidash 
וקידשנו בשנת החמישים שנה וקראתם דרור בארץ לכל ישראל. דרור זה word freedom. the shofar says free. Free, who's free? וכל יושביה. הוא תהיה לכם ושבתם איש אל אחוזתו ואיש אל משפחתו תשובו. So that shofar blast once in 50 years is a declaration of war on slavery, on, on uh, mega corporations buying out land holdings from little people who couldn't afford to maintain. It's, it's the war against the regular kind of society that we know about, those who study about Babylon and Assyria. That's how it was. There were very rich people and there were very poor people and the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. You must have heard the song someplace. The law comes to the Torah. And the Torah says, look, once in 50 years we're going to have a, we'll start over again. We'll start over again. Can you imagine that? Everybody gets back what they had. Everybody gets back what they had and all the slaves will go free. Of course, everything has a knetch to it. You know, like, uh, yes, but, no, no, no. but mostly... This is what the Torah wants. These are the laws of Shemitah. These are the laws of Shemitah B'yoveh. Before we look at Rashi, I would like to, uh, I'd like to first uh, see what the Rambam had to say. You know that the Rambam had a very utilitarian approach to mitzvot. He thought that mitzvot were like vitamins. It would be Because, you know, you might not, like vitamins, you might not always see what's good about them. But all in all, you know, the gadol, as they say in Israel, the vitamins, they do good things for you. You know, if you have the right number and the right amount, and the vitamins. So the Rambam, the Rambam thought, the Rambam thought that mitzvot were good for you. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the mitzvot. And in order to understand about the mitzvot, what we have to look for is the goodness in them. The goodness for us. What good do they do for us? So one very large category of mitzvot, according to the Rambam, was that the mitzvot redefined the way we think about things. And the primary issue in thinking for the Rambam was avodazarah, idolatry. But you know that the Rambam thought that we could all fall prey to an idolatrous position because it was reasonable on a certain level. To be idolatrous for the Rambam was a very reasonable thing because the Rambam, the Rambam says in the beginning of Biblos of Abizor, he says that people, people said that if God gave power to the moon, right, the moon is in charge of the tides, right? You know, moon, gravity water, <laughs> it moves it around, so the moon is in charge of the tides when people discovered that they said, well, doesn't it make sense to say that God wants us to thank the moon, otherwise God would not have given the moon this power or this authority but would have kept it, so to speak for himself so the Rambam says The Rambam says in the beginning of the Chot Avodah that this is a, a mistake that you can't really, you can't get out of it. it it's, not, it's not possible to, 
to redefine things such as that so that Avodah would become unreasonable. Quite the contrary. The more you think about Avodah the more difficult it is to remove it from yourself. And therefore, the Torah, Aseret HaDibrot, the first thing that the Aseret HaDibrot say is, Lo Yelecha Elohim Acherim Al Panai. You should not have any other gods. The Aseret HaDibrot doesn't say that there are no other gods or that there is no other kind of power that in the world. The Aseret HaDibrot just said, you stay away. You're monotheists. That's what you are committed to. Back to Abraham Avinu. Right? Which doesn't, doesn't mean that any other belief is a lie. It's just not significant if you compare it to the belief that the Torah demands, demands of us. So the Rambam, the Rambam thought that the Torah offered us offered us a better way of living, a better way of thinking, a better way of being. So if you look at the Rambam, this is, uh, I don't know exactly, I guess it's the, uh, I mean, uh, the older translation of the, uh, of the Guide to the Perplexed. Terrible <laughs> to forget, forget names. Names, the first thing to go. What? Friedlander. Friedlander, thank you. I didn't know you were into... I inherited the book, the original, from my father. Oh, look, he's... Good start, good start. It's a good book. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good book. Uh, Friedlander, you can buy... You can get very easily. I think you you get it online. It's online, Friedlander. The other, the newer translation, it was done by Shlomo... Penis, who was a professor of philosophy at Hebrew University, very interesting person who I I took his course in uh, in the Guide to the Perplexed one year. I, I could never understand how he got to class because you watched him walking out in the, that quad in the Hebrew University, like he never could walk a straight line. And he walked forward and backwards and in the oddest ways, but somehow he always ended up in the classroom. And it was a very good class. I was very happy I went. So here's the Rambam. The Rambam says, as to the precepts enumerated the laws concerning the year of release and the Jubilee, Shemitah and Yovel, right? Some of them imply sympathy with our fellow men. That's the Pasuk. Where, where's that Pasuk? In Mishpatim, right? it talks about Evyon. Those are Evyon, the poor. You know, the poor you should have sympathy with our fellow men and promote the well-being of mankind. For in reference to these precepts, it is stated in the law that the poor of thy people may eat. Right? That's Shmot Perikav Gimel Pasuk Eleven. And besides. The land will also increase its produce and improve when it remains fallow for some time. And so you see the Rambam says that there's a practical need for a sabbatical year. And there's no practical need for redistribution of, of, uh, your, uh, of your money. 
but there is a practical need to have, and I think any anybody everybody knows that right. Most farmers would agree that you have to rotate the crops or leave some part of the the field fallow for a year every once in a while. This is well known. And the Rambam, the Rambam who lived uh, many years ago, also thinks that that's the reason for uh, for shemitah. And then he says. Uh, uh, other precepts of this class prescribe kindness to servants and to the poor by renouncing any claims to debts in the year of release in Shemitah. Right? In, on the Shemitah year, on the Shemitah year, all debts are cancelled. Not only, well, we didn't see that in the Pesach yet, but, but all debts, you know, are cancelled unless you take advantage of the prosbo. Right? Do you remember what there was, there was a situation in the world where the opposite took place. First, the problem was that the people who had the debt, people who held on to the paper, people who were the creditors, you know, were so wealthy that uh, it would be the end of society. So they were stopped holding their tracks if I owed money on the, on the sabbatical year. I mean, the debt just disappeared, which is pretty much of a remarkable idea. And then he says, by renouncing any claims to debts and relieving the slaves of their bondage, also the seventh year, there are some precepts in this class that serve to secure for the people a permanent source of maintenance and support by providing that the land should remain the permanent property of its owners, that the Yovel, and it should not be sold, and the land shall not be sold forever. In this way, the property of a person remains intact for him and his heirs, and he could only enjoy the produce thereof. I have thus explained the reason of all precepts contained in our work in the section Zura'im, seeds, with the exception of the laws concerning the mixture of different species of beasts and the reason which we give it later on. So you see, the Rambam has a very pragmatic, I would say, approach to this problem of Shemitah Yovel. He doesn't stand astounded at it, but he says... Look, if you want to run a society where people have a chance and they don't become an underclass and they're not sort of like uh, doomed forever to be uh, uh, the working class, the people who serve, uh, but that they, they have also mobility and that if they have the intelligence and the talent and the ability that they can move up and down. So these laws provide the framework for such movement, I think. And it's not only on the seventh year, because if on the seventh year a slave will be able to decide for himself, I'll be able to, to investigate his own talents and, and, and needs, so certainly everything will change. Everything will change. And if he knows at the end of 50 years he'll get the land back that his father lost him in some kind of a poker game, and he knows that it belongs to him and he's going to get it back, that also changes changes everything. So you see that the Rambam had a very pragmatic approach. And this approach of the Rambam, in different words, has been uh, uh, followed up in the last 800 years until our time. You can look at Rabbi Jacobowitz and after him, Lord Rabbi Sachs, and, 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 and it's very, uh, very popular, very popular for us to say that the Torah was socially forward-looking, and, and way ahead of its time and, and, and describing a kind of revolutionary attitude to poverty 
you just end it. You just end poverty by telling people that that they're not poor anymore. They're, they're going to be able to do whatever they want. And and, uh, and so we start talking about the kibbutzim before. I mean, it's interesting that in Eretz Israel, where the where the Olim came to a country which was difficult, a difficult country, a impoverished country, they didn't have gas or oil or or uh, things of that sort which they could convert into cash. They had to work hard. The idea of kibbutzim, the idea of kibbutzim and social uh, a social equality, which was not heard any place else was sent back sent back to Shemitah and Yovel Shemitah and Yovel were the models for this kind of uh, a change or a societal change okay it didn't work out yet it's not yet been kind of become part of the, the Israeli uh, 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 part of Israel but it's true that Israel spends a lot of money on social welfare of one kind or another but it's also true uh, that uh, even yesterday or today they announced, <coughs> somebody announced that the, uh, the par between those people who are impoverished and those people who are very rich is the greatest in, um, in Europe, in the, Western, in the Western world actually. Right? You know, we're very close to Malaysia, but we're not close to Germany. So, uh, you know, even though we do try, I think, I would say the same as tries, it does not, it has not yet found a way of accomplishing this goal that the Rambam talks about through Shemitah. Now I would like to uh, uh, read with you a section from Rav Kook's introduction to a book that he wrote called Shabbat Aretz, a very um, you know, high-level halachic work in which Rav Kook tried to prove that the Heter Mechirat on Shemitah was viable and that it could be used. You know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of opposition to the Heter Mechirat, uh, simply stated because um, it was not clear that a Jew could sell Eretz Yisrael to a non-Jew. I mean, the model is, of course, selling chametz to a non-Jew before Pesach. But there's no prohibition against selling chametz to a non-Jew uh, Arab Pesach but there is a prohibition uh, preventing Jews selling Eretz Yisrael to non-Jews it was the idea that the Torah seemed to have is that the Jews should go to Eretz Yisrael and conquer it and acquire it the word that's used often in the Torah is achuzah in Hebrew, achoz, le'achoz, is to grab on, to hold something. And so the Torah wants us to hold on to Eretz Yisrael. It doesn't want us to sell it. So this is the problem that Rav Kook dealt with. That Rav Kook thought, in all fairness, Rav Kook was against the Heter Mechira. He himself was against the Heter Mechira. However, he said that it would see, it seemed to him that the economic situation in Eretz Yisrael at that time was such that it imposed upon him the need, as the Rav Rashi of Eretz Yisrael, to solve the problem somehow. But in his, in his statement that he wrote, in the halacha that he wrote, he says the following. He says, this is not to be construed as a blanket heter. You could just use it anytime. But every seven years, 
the Rabbanim have to look into the situation anew. And only if they decide that there is this critical need for maintaining agricultural produce in Eretz Yisrael, could the Heter Mechirah be imposed and implemented? So it's hard to say that Rav Kuk wanted this Heter Mechirah, but Rav Kuk thought that he had a responsibility and that his responsibility was his responsibility was to make it possible for the Jews to live. And if if uh, if they wouldn't work the land, they might not be able not be able to live. There was also the other side of it, which was that most of the people in Eretzishol built dealt with agriculture were not religious people. They were not interested in shemitah one way or the other. So that by instituting the hetem mechirah. And by getting everybody to agree to it on some level or another, he felt that he was doing a chesed for those people who were not going to keep the mitzvah in any event, sort of like de facto, they're better off than they were uh, otherwise. Now, it's also well known that the great opponent to the position of Rav Kook, the great denier of Rav Kook's position, was the Chazanish. Chazanish lived in Bnei Brak, and he um, and he uh, uh, established certain rules, which little by little have become um, more and more accepted by more and more rabbanim, even in Yerushalayim. Even though for many years Yerushalayim, well, I'll tell you one basic difference. Right in Yerushalayim, it was always true that you could eat produce. Uh, from Arabs who lived in Eretz Yisrael that the, the prohibition of growing in land land in Eretz Yisrael only applied to Jews but if there was an Arab and he has a farm, a big farm and he grew cucumbers you could eat those cucumbers and that's the position of the Badats to this very day uh, Rav, uh, the Chazanish said no that those fruits and vegetables also have what's called kedushat shvi'it. You have to treat them. You can eat them, but you have to be careful not to throw them away and not to treat them in a in an un, uh, un, uh, improper improper manner. So you have to have a special uh, pot to put the rinds and whatever's left over into, and then you you don't throw it out with the garbage, but you wait till it rots a little bit, etc. There's certain kinds of rules. Now, somebody asked the Chazanish. So the Chazanish, they weren't contemporary, Rav Kook and the Chazanish. Right? Rav Kook died in 1935. And the Chazanish came to Eretz Yisrael in the 40s. I don't remember exactly what year. They weren't exactly, they didn't overlap. But Rav Chazanish was very strongly opposed to Rav Kook on this matter of, uh, of Shemitah. So, somebody told me this story. They asked the Chazanish, why he was so um, uh, enraged at the uh, at the Mechira. And they said, after all, Shemitah today is only a mitzvah drabanan. It's not the not the Minat Torah. The Minat Torah mitzvah we don't keep because 
There are other regulations. For example, most of the Jewish people have to be in Eretz Yisrael. The land has to be conquered, etc., etc. There are all kinds of. So we don't. We only keep the Shemitah Midrabanan. Only keep Shemitah Midrabanan. Why do you have to start this fight about Shemitah and Yovel? So it's a story that I heard from the person who heard it from the Chazanish. Right, it's first. It's almost. A, you can almost give a dut on this kind of story. So the Chazanish said this. There are two mitzvot in the Torah that determine the unique national character of the Jewish people. Imagine that. Remember they asked, where they asked Hillel and Shammai, teach me the whole Torah standing on one foot? Shammai couldn't do it. Hillel said, which is interesting. Right, you know, remember that? We once spoke about that. Let's take the Gemara and Shabbat, Hillel and Shammai. Along comes Rav Kook, like 2,000 years later, and he says, you could sell the land for the benefit of the of the club, of the tzibur, of the community. Along came the Chazanish and said, no. Because there are two mitzvot that determine the national character of the Jewish people. One of them we've lost through some kind of finagling that we do. And the other one, we can't afford to lose. The two mitzvot that the Chazanish was referring to were the mitzvah of Ribit and the mitzvah of Shemitah. Ribit, it's forbidden for a Jew to be usurious to another Jew. It's forbidden in the Torah. Now, that means that the banks can't take interest from me when I have an overdraft. They can't. But they do. Right? Because we know that there is this thing, this vehicle called Heter Iska. Right? You remember that? You know those words like we sort of make believe that we're in a partnership with the with the bank. And the bank is taking its share of profits or taking its share of, uh, of, of uh, the debt. And that's why it turns out that we end up with less money than we started out. But not because they're taking rebate. We, we make up. So the Chazanish said rebate. We've lost now the Chazanish. I don't know if he knew this. But I don't know if he knew. But you know that the, uh, the Arabs, the Islamic uh, world, doesn't take rebate. Not on their credit cards and not on their bank accounts. So it would seem that if you look into it, if you look into that, what the Arabs do in order to avoid taking rebid, which is part of the Quran, uh, we could also do that, I think, but we don't. So the Chazan, you said, the other mitzvah that determines the natural national character of Am Yisrael is Shemitah, and we can't afford to lose it. And so what did the Chazanish mean? The Chazanish meant that a Jew is not so, he's supposed to have a different attitude to other people, to their financial obligations, and to the redistribution of wealth that is normally accepted in the world. And since Rebit is gone, the only thing we have left, he said, was Shemitah. And therefore he felt that you had to be extremely extremely serious about applying the mitzvah of Shemitah. That's what, and therefore, he was very strongly opposed to Rav Kook's idea 
that you could have the Heta Mechira. And Rav Cook said, Rav Cook and I didn't talk to each other, but Rav Cook said that, uh, that there was an economic, there was great economic danger, and we had to do something to protect the Yishuv, which at that time was very small. And uh, however, Rav Cook also, also wrote, also wrote what he thought, some thoughts that he had about Shemitah in the introduction to the book that he wrote about Shemitah, which is a running commentary on the Rambam, Hilchot Shemitah Aviyovel. So look at the at Rav Kook. You see Rav Kook? You see it? Mm-hmm. I'm going to try. You know, Rav Kook is not always so easy. But we'll try. You see, Rav Kook, he thought that there was a nation of Israel, not just group of people, each of whom tried to do the mitzvot of the Torah. He says, but there are some things that we did as a national mitzvah. Pace the Chazanish. Right, remember what the Chazanish said, and what is that? He says, why is it that Shemitah is called Shabbat? Because it's like Shabbat. What if it's like Shabbat? Well, people who keep Shabbat, right? People who keep the Shabbat, what are they doing? They're Mikhadesh HaShabbat. They are doing something to time. It's not a, a regular day. I'm joining in a great experiment to keep Shabbat. Each individual who keeps Shabbat feels strongly that he comes closer to the Rebbeinu Shalom, closer to God, and therefore Shemitah does the same thing to the nation of Israel. Not once in seven days, but once in seven years. It's absolutely necessary for this nation the people of Israel. I'll translate. The creation. The divine. Elokit, the divine creation. Or that we are divinely created. Nitu'ah. Planted in its midst. In a very obvious and uh, 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 ultimate way, so that we are we are special, but something has to bring out that special in us. Ki mizman mizman from time to time we become aware within ourselves of the maor ha'eloki, the the divine light shema bekol malay zohara. Suddenly. We become aware of the uh, of the light of God that dwells within us. And this light is not going to be yashkituhu. It will not be uh, put away, put aside, forgotten about, uh, because of the world, the, the social world that we live in, all am ha'amel v'hada'aga. We always are carrying around the yoke 
of the difficulties of life so that life is problematic because life denies us the ability to see within ourselves the divine light. Life, just getting through the day, just getting to the next day, there are always problems, always things happening, there are always uh, things that we don't understand and we don't know why, why this happened, why that happened. Why this is what we all do all the time. And we're, we're, we're admired in that. But Shemitah takes us out of that. Right, just like Shabbat takes us out of it, so Shemitah takes us out of it. The anger that it causes, the competition, the man to chal hit galot bekirba penima, taharat nishmata beklavita, kemoshehi. This is only in order that we should be able to see within ourselves what our great spiritual potential what our great spiritual potential is. So I think it would be, um, well, a, a certain lack of, uh, you know, a reality check, if I would say, that Rav Kook and the Chazanish were really saying the same thing. But there is a certain similarity between the Chazanish who said, it's Shemitah that creates the nation. Shemitah. That, uh, that tells us who we are and what we should do and how we should act. And Rav Kuku said that it's Shemitah that allows us to free ourselves from the bondage of everyday life which denies us the opportunity to think about uh, the light and the awareness and the openness and, and, and the potential, whatever, however you think of it. But certainly at some times in our lives, I mean, everybody feels good about themselves, feels the, the, the ability that they have to reach up, to reach higher, to get more. I mean, everybody, everybody, this is not something that I'm trying to sell. It's something that everybody has experienced. It's something we all have. We all know this. We all know this to be the case. But we need time that leaves us unencumbered by all sorts of strange things that bother us all the time. So the Torah says once in seven years, nothing is yours, nothing grows, you're the same as everybody else, you don't have to worry if it was a good deal, or not such a good deal, if you, if you, if you were able to put the money in the right place, or not put the money in the right place, all that is gone, once every seven years. And it allows, according to Rav Kuk, for the national spirit to come out and make itself uh, aware uh, to everybody. So the Chazanish said, it's part of the definition of our natural, our national character. And Rakuk said, inside of us, we all have this special light, and we need Shemitah to help us get it out. Uh, not exactly the same, but not so far off either. Have a good shot.